from Green Biz Group. Welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower, co-hosting this week from London, England. On this week's edition, how to build an electric vehicle network, why ESG data is the new, new thing, and three Hawaiian teenagers share their hopes for a sustainable future. From Hawaii to Britain, the sun never sets on the Green Biz Empire. This week on 350. It's June 22nd, 2018. Welcome to this week's edition of Green Biz 350. As I said, hosting this week from London and joining me from across the pond is editorial director Heather Clancy. Hello, Heather. Hello. I'm still laughing, Joel. <laughs> well, you know, you uh, you got back on Wednesday from Hawaii. I left uh, Sunday for the UK and... You know, uh, it's just it it, it kind of hits just keep on coming, and um, uh, I have to say, burning a lot, burning way too much jet fuel uh, for the business that we're in. But you know, I guess that's kind of the way we roll these days. Um, but yeah, um, I'm I, I assume you had a great time in uh, in Hawaii after the conference ended. I did. I uh, as I think. The people on this podcast know I have a mom, and she lives in Hawaii. And so I went over to the Big Island where I was treated to some more vog from Kilauea. That's the volcanic um, fog. Yes, volcanic fog, which is just this um, pervasive uh, atmospheric um, issue right now over there. And um, my, my mom gets these alerts every morning, another 5.3 earthquake. And then, you know, today's eruptions at Fisher 8. And it's just um, <laughs> wow. kind of, it's like a weather forecast. They, they have, actually, it is a weather forecast. The weather forecast always includes the discussion of the VOG. And the thing, actually, that we were, t believe it or not, that we were ch chatting about just kind of casually was the uh, change in the, the renewable mix and on the Big Island um, as a result of this, the big ge geothermal plant that got taken offline and, because it, uh, because it got covered uh, with lava. It, exactly. And uh, it really whacked down the, um, the renewables mix on the Big Island. So now they're trying to figure out how to, how to handle that. And one of the issues there, which I think will be resolved with uh, some of the new legislation on performance-based rate making that, that, that they're working on, is, is how do you get the older plants offline um, quickly, right? So there's there's no financial incentive to retire some of them. So they need to, they're, they're adding a lot of renewables, but what they're not able to do as quickly is take the other stuff off. So that's something to watch, I think, over time. But Joel, why are you, why did you, what possessed you to fly from pretty much almost from Hawaii all over to London? Well, I did stop at home in California for a couple days to do the laundry and stuff like that. Um, I'm here this week for, well, the anchor event this week is a Circular Economy Summit put on by the Ellen MacArthur Foundation. Now, we're recording this on Wednesday, the 20th. Uh, the event is tomorrow uh, on Thursday, even though I said at the top of the show it's Friday the 22nd. Uh, so that's pretty confusing. So uh, I, I've only gone through three of my five days here in London is the point. But it's been really, really interesting. First of all, this is just one of my favorite cities. And I've 
yesterday, Tuesday, I walked just a skosh under 10 miles, according to my uh, step counter on my iPhone. And um, just walking everywhere and the weather's been fabulous and it stays light until about 10 o'clock and it's it's so much fun but um, having some great meetings and conversations and you know the theme here it's finance and ESG data uh, everybody wants to talk about it because that's what's uh, top of mind right now and in, in some circles at least this stuff this data about environmental social and governance performance of companies which used to be uh, nice to do or used to be of interest only to so-called socially responsible or impact investors is now front and center. It's on Wall Street. It's on in what they call the city, which is uh, uh, London's Wall Street. And I've uh, had a, some great conversations about that. I'll, over the course of this podcast, I'll play a couple different interviews, uh, one with Karen James, who's the CEO of Environmental Resources Management, or ERM as it's better known, which is a, actually the largest pure placed environmental and sustainability consulting firm, uh, 160 offices in 40 countries, and they're getting deep into this. And then TrueCost, our terrific partner for the State of Green Business Report, um, and part now of, of S&P, Standard & Poor, S&P Global. I had a great conversation with Rich Madison, the president uh, of, or the CEO of TrueCost, which we'll play a little bit later. And uh, we're cooking up some interesting stuff, which I'll just tease out now. But uh, we're going to be doing some more and more things about what I call Greenfin, Green Finance, um, at uh, some of our events and on on our website and our podcast. This is going to be a growing topic for us. Really, really interesting stuff that's largely originating in the EU here in Europe. And as last I checked, England is still part of the EU for now. And so there's just a lot of really interesting things going on. And then, too late for this podcast, but stay tuned for next week, there's the Circular Economy Summit, which uh, I'll be having some more interviews and a full report on, as I said, for next week's podcast. So sorry, that's a long answer to your short question about what the heck are you doing in England, but that's why I'm here. <laughs> well, if you have a chance to go walking after hours later, go to the Sir John Soane Museum. It's amazing. I love it. It's like, uh, and I have to agree with you, London London and San Francisco vie for my heart in terms of my favorite cities. So. Well. Jealous, jealous. I'm right there with you, except I'd add New York to that too, because I can always spend, can't spend enough time in the Big Apple. But um, you know, more to come from from the UK. But for now, let's let's look back at the week in review. So the first story I want to talk about today is a great piece from Erica Hauver, who's. Um, sustainability advisor and corporate executive uh, is what her title is. She used to be with Hitachi Consulting uh, in the Washington, D.C. area, and is, is, I think, one of the great thinkers about corporate strategy on sustainability. And she wrote a piece about Mars. No, not the planet, but the uh, food company that makes Mars and Snickers and Three Musketeers, as well as a whole bunch of other products um, like uh, dog food and uh, uh, I don't know the fullness of it, but they're a pretty big company. And uh, they recently committed a billion dollars uh, to achieve what they call their Sustainable in a Generation Plan. Uh, and uh, this is a plan that 
you know, is is looking at how do you accelerate the sustainability journey that this company with $35 billion in revenue and 80,000 employees in 80 countries has already been on. And it's really, I have to, she gives the inside story of sort of what happened at the leadership level. It's pretty interesting, particularly if you've been following Mars for any length of time, because Mars is a family-owned business. Everyone is from the Mars family. And for uh, a long time, I mean, they were they were actually based in McLean, Virginia, which is the same town that uh, the CIA is, headquarters is. And they were kind of likened to uh, a secretive organization that, you know, did not want publicity, that did things their own way and kept a very low profile, almost in a uh, nefarious kind of way. And more recently, I'm pretty sure it has to do with a new generation of leaders coming in to the leadership uh, of the company, but they've uh, really picked up and now they're towards the front of the class in in sustainability. So I love Erica's piece because anytime you can sort of get behind the scenes and see how they got to uh, this commitment and the five principles behind it, it's pretty interesting. Well, so Joel... Full disclosure, and I thought I thought you knew this, but I test marketed Twix, and I test marketed Twix because my dad used to work for Mars, and oh. uh, I very much am familiar with the culture. Um, when I first became a journalist, my dad used to joke with me, like he, I, I always used to joke I would want to write a book about Mars, and they all, my father would actually legitimately get very concerned. No, you can't do that uh, because of the the um, the cultural. Uh, privacy that they had. But I'll, I'll just make an observation that I feel like comes out in, in um, this piece that you, you referred to here. And that's that every single person in that culture, every manager, um, really, it's, it is a hugely collaborative, at least at the time my father was there, hugely collaborative um, uh, mindset. So basically, if one person was going to punch a time card, in other words, if Mars was going to tell the people in the factory cleaning the the chocolate vats to to punch in and punch out. Everyone was going to punch in and punch out, and that was up to the this the executive suite. So, basically, the culture there is one of we're all in this together. Um, the family owned thing definitely pervaded. I know it's changing, but from from a cultural perspective, the way that that Mars has has layered this and blended this into the mindset is so um, so thoughtful and so important. And that was, and it was smart. The fact that they did it that way, it just makes a whole lot of sense. So I love this piece as well. And, and it was interesting. I was just literally, uh, and this is for a piece that I'm reporting on, uh, I was on the phone with uh, Kevin Rabinovitz, who's the VP of Global Sustainability. And we were talking about- At Mars. At Mars, yes, um, exactly. And we were talking about how to get to the next level with um, carbon accounting on- um, thermal loads, right, at, at their factories. So for example, the um, how do you heat the steam needed for certain processes or and so on. And that's a that's a perplexing issue that um, some of the larger manufacturing companies are gonna have to get at. And he, you know, he's really focused in on how do you get down to the plant level and help the managers really understand the the different benefits cost wise and carbon cost wise of, of different approaches. So Stay tuned, listeners, for a story on that. But also, I love this story as well because of that cultural aspect. It's a um, company I've always been impressed by, of course, because 
I'm a little Mars baby, but <laughs> well, well, let me let me let me ask you a question. I hope this isn't too personal and you don't have to answer it, but what does it mean to test market Twix? <laughs> so before Twix came onto the market, I tested it. The families of the, of the company would get to try new products. So I actually tried that. I tried combo. So before Twi before you were able to buy Twix on the shelves of the store, I tried it and uh, I gave it a big thumbs up. Combos, not such a big thumbs up. Um, I think I'm not even sure if they're still out there. They're a, they were a pretzel snack stuffed with like cheese whizzy type stuff. And I'm using another brand name there. But anyway, so yeah, before you you could buy Twix, I tried Twix and. and <laughs> So you can thank me for Twix, not not just me, but <laughs> people like me. Well, you 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 are very cool, and your stock just rose a little bit more in my in, on my index. So that's great. But let's move over to um, uh, another topic that's that's really interesting to GreenBiz. In fact, it's going to be the the focus of our summit that we're going to hold during Verge Transport in October, part of the Verge 18 conference series on transportation electrification. This is the uh, accord that was uh, just signed by uh, a group of companies, uh, automakers and, and utilities, and uh, even groups like uh, the NRDC and the Sierra Club uh, looking to, uh, you know, how, how do you build out the power and the information network and the infrastructure for the electrification of transportation. This is, of course, written by our senior writer and analyst for transportation, Katie Fehrenbacher. Yeah, so what I appreciated about this piece is it, it reminded me of the, the renewable energy um, buyer's principles, and I think I'm butchering that name. But uh, before the corporate renewables procurement movement really started to take off. A number of companies kind of put their stake in the ground, boom, and said, we need these things to help us get cleaner when it comes to our electricity mix. And they they basically, and it was a cross, well, mostly, mostly corporate buyers in that instance, but they were basically making a statement. Um, and it's evolved since then. The, the document itself has evolved, but they kind of put a stake in the ground. And I see this as very much uh, a similar thing because you have so many different initiatives starting to bubble up and you don't want them to be at odds with, with each other. Um, and especially you don't, you want, you want this, this lens of equity to be coming through as the utilities put electric vehicle charging infrastructure in place in particular. So I, this reminded me of that, and I'm so glad that she was able to get on top of this because um, I feel like this is one of those things that will help the, the, the entire industry step forward or accelerate forward or have whatever, <laughs> whatever transportation verb you want to use um, in, a, in a more concerted and maybe quicker way. Clear, steer clear of the speed bumps. Um, yeah, and, and you mentioned that you're glad she was able to cover this. I can assure you, and as you know this well too, that now that we have Katie Fehrenbacher on board, we're going to be covering transportation and particularly the electrification and the access to mobility and a lot of the things that are this article and is about and that you just talked about uh, ever more so than we than we have and and that will be uh, also part of verge verge transport as I said um, we'll be talking about a lot of these things and then we'll have the summit that's about fleet electrification so yeah lots more to come on electric vehicles and how we scale those. And then finally, 
we have one more story from Hawaii, and this was just a great part of what was, I have to say, a great event, um, where we had a conversation on the, on the main stage among three Hawaiian teenagers, sort of helping us understand where they're coming from and what they're thinking about and why they are hopeful, which is, <laughs> suffice to say, refreshing. And, and these kids, I mean, they were picked for a reason. They were just really impressive in terms of their, not just their stage presence, their ability to be articulate, but also their vision. Of, of It wasn't, you could tell it was something, things they had thought about. A lot of times you hear from, you know, young people, teenagers or, or younger on issues uh, that are in the public eye. And, you know, you sort of, I know I did, you end up sort of parroting what you hear your parents or, or some others talking about. And, and this was very, very, very thoughtful. Um, I don't know if we have the video up yet, um, but we will soon. Of course, you can see it in the whole live stream uh, archive that is available, but we'll have this video of just this event up soon, and it'll be part of our, our uh, Center Stage podcast as well. I just love this, uh, what these these kids had to say. And we'll have audio in a moment, actually, some some highlights. But just for a little bit of context, um, the idea was that a number, the, these were not the only teenagers at the conference. There was a group of them selected to come and attend. So they were at Verge Hawaii. They were there the entire conference. They got to listen to the keynotes. They got to kind of um, schmooze around um, with the audience and, and listen to the presentations. And this was sort of their report out, if you will, on on the uh, event, what they were taking away from it. And I actually had the incredible pleasure of managing, I ended up on a plane with one of them um, back to the Big Island, Annika Berzini. Um, I'm not sure exactly what her background is. I didn't get that, that, that nosy, but um, it sounds like she's got Swedish parents, actually. Um, and kind of asked her what she was 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 thinking about for the future and the the, the, the maturity and the poise and um the, the of all three of the the teenagers that were on stage was um just it gave it, I was grabbing the tissues I don't know about you Joel but it just made my heart beat faster and I got so um inspired by them but also I I it reminded me that that the next generation is watching and um and 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 we that we need to do more um, listening. I think sometimes we we don't stop and listen. And that was one of the the points that that all three of them kind of made was, hey, you know what? Go out there and talk to more people and listen to more people. And of all ages, of all um, ethnicities, of all income levels, and so forth. And they, they sort of encourage us to get back in the community. We, you know, as a lot of listeners know, we love bringing young people to our events. We have the Emerging Leaders program where we bring, uh, give scholarships to sort of as we did with, with these young people in, in Hawaii, though these were high school students, I believe. Yes. We do that with, with college students where we, we bring a bunch of them and not just get them in, but give them a good experience and hook them up with some of the corporate uh, sustainability professionals. And everybody loves it. The, the older folks do. The young kids have this amazing time and make some great contacts. And it, it is so important that as, we, as we've covered the uh, sustainability profession for a long, long time, 
that we keep an eye on uh, making sure that the, there's a new generation coming in, uh, not just uh, in college, but even before that. And so this is one demonstration of that. So I love that. And uh, so what are we going to listen to right now? So we're going to listen to highlights from the, the conversation that was uh, moderated by Louis Salaberry. He's with the Department of Business, Economic Development and Tourism, did a great job moderating the questions for these um, three young people. And so we will hear from Annika Berezny from the Big Island, from Jenna Takata from Kauai, and Selena Hina Chow, who is from Maui. And I'll just let them speak for themselves. They're so articulate. What we can bring to the table is an uncompromised mindset because the, what we have done so far is not enough. We've inherited a dying planet and it's time to act now. Um, sustainability needs and must be implemented in every single decision that we make going forward. It, it's not a choice to not think about it anymore. We need to be implementing this into our lifestyles because this is... There's no doubt that we are running out of resources. There's no doubt that we're going to run out of coal and oil. That's not a disputed fact. So we need to start moving toward a sustainable lifestyle if we're just going to perpetuate everything that we live for. And we're not talking in hundreds of thousands of years. We're talking in the next 50 to 100 years, we could be suffering from not making this change to sustainability. And that's why we stress together urgency in action, that it needs to happen now. I know that it's new for us to be here and speaking to you all, but for the decision makers and for anyone out there, I think it's important that we include students as well as the rest of the community who may not have their opinions represented here or in the decision-making rooms. We need to have the good opinions, what may be considered bad opinions, but just so that we can come to a decision together as a community. If you look across what's going on politically in the United States and who is actually making change, it's the youth with uh, social media or groups that they make. It's the youth, and we are the future. Um, if I can give any advice, it's to take a big, deep breath, get some oxygen to your brain, and start making decisions now, please. Um, decisions with the mindset of a sense of place, a mindset of the Hawaii Islands, a mindset of the communities that will be affected. You represent all, but not all voices are heard. Because you're, you're making choices and because Hawaii is a state and so far from each other, all the islands depend on each other. So you can be here and you can be in your office and you can make decisions. They can be good or bad. But if you don't go out and listen to the people on your island and listen to the people in Hawaii, then who are you listening to? And if you're listening, actually listening to people, you're, you're probably not listening to the right people. Like, go out, like, even on Molokai, there's so many people that have their own opinions. So just when you're making your decision, decisions, go out into the world. Like, we have people from Alaska here. Just listen to people so you can make the right and good decisions. Well, this experience has been... I. I 
nothing short of life-changing for me. To be exposed to these things is so important. And I, I always tell everyone, I had no idea that Hawaii had this sort of potential until it was thrown at my face. And I'm not talking like, um, you know, we, we see solar going up, but we're, we're saying get people involved because really when you have that support, things happen. And you all have taken huge steps already. But the more support, and then the more people that know about this, who actually know and understand what's happening and making this, your efforts accessible to everyone to understand, the more we can work together to reach our goals. One of the stops I made this week in London was at ERM, the headquarters for the global sustainability consulting firm, about 50 years old, one of the largest pure play consultants, uh, environmental consultancies in the world. And um, got to meet with Karen James, their CEO, to talk about sustainability and lots of other things. And uh, Karen, first of all, great to be here in London. Thank you and great to meet you, Joel. I wonder what you talk about uh, the financial sector right now and what's going on. There seems to be so much happening uh, in terms of how the financial sector and is in, interacting with companies uh, in trying to you know, bring environmental, social, and governance data to the fore. What are you seeing among your clients? Yeah, so I think there's two things. Uh, you know, one is from an ESG perspective, environmental, social uh, governance factors. We've seen that growth in that trend, uh, particularly amongst the private equity investors um, over the last few years. I think in the last 12 months, what we've really seen um, come to the fore is investor concern around climate risk. Uh, and we're seeing an enormous pressure coming from investors on corporates um, to respond to the challenges that investors are making in terms of the risk that they're exposed to uh, as a consequence of climate change. So private equity investors, that's interesting because these are not publicly listed companies that have stockholders and, and proxy uh, fights and all of that. Why, uh, P, why does PE, private equity, why are they interested in, in climate risk? Look, I think it's the, that, that latter word, risk. That's their predominant concern. Um, you know, these are very, very significant uh, investors uh, that are looking at a whole portfolio uh, of companies. And, and first and foremost, they're most concerned about whether or not their money is going to be safe, uh, it, you know, being invested in these portfolio companies. And they're increasingly recognizing some of the uh, financial risks that arise from environmental, social and governance issues and the very material impact that they can have on a company's performance and therefore if you are able to monitor that, track that and manage it more effectively, uh, you can in fact get a better performance from your portfolio company but most importantly minimise the risk. So how is the conversation changing at the board level of companies uh, in terms of, of, of ESG and, and climate risk? Is that a conversation different today than it was, say, two years ago? Look, I think it is because uh, investors are becoming uh, more pointed, more demanding in terms of the response that they're expecting uh, from corporates. So instead of paying lip service perhaps to some of these issues, I think that we are seeing boards recognise that investors are voting with their 
hip pockets. Um, so they're effectively saying, if you don't address these issues, then the risk of us investing in you is higher and we might just take our money elsewhere. Uh, and in some cases, they choose to do that. So I think that, that boards and, and CEOs and CFOs in particular are really recognising the influence, the growing influence that the investor community has on the decisions that they're making and they need to have a real response. But we've been hearing this for a long time that investors vote with their dollars and some of them actually do. What's different now? Look, I think that that what's different now is uh, that, um, you know, the, the things like climate risk are actually having a material impact on the performance of a business, um, you know, whether it's flooding, whether it's fire, whether it's, um, you know, uh, sort of extreme weather events, they're actually materially impacting on a business, you know, their supply chain, um, their sourcing, etc. And so I, I think that there's a, a real concern at the board level that perhaps companies are not as prepared, they're not as future proof as what they need to be. Uh, and there's, you know, real concern amongst investors. And so I, I think there's just a shift in terms of people recognizing that this is not this is not an issue that's fly by night it's not going to go away investors are going to keep answering and, and asking these questions um, and you know there is a huge amount of money out there available for investing and they are going to choose to put it somewhere where the risk is lower so ERM is a global organization. Are you seeing this uptake of, of climate risk and investor interest globally, or are there some pockets where it seems to be more active than others? Yeah, look, I think, um, you know, it, the, the sort of the initial wave of interest, I think, certainly came out of Europe first and then more latterly, um, you know, there's a high degree of interest in Asia. I think in North America, um, it's been very recent that we've started to see that trend emerging. But I think now um, certainly many of the, the large um, US-based investors are certainly starting to flex their muscles in terms of shareholder resolution, shareholder vote. Um, and so I think we're really starting to see some movement in the North American market as well. And so what's the big opportunity here for ERM? Look, I think the big opportunity for us is um, both uh, advising um, investors about the kinds of issues that they need to be asking questions about uh, and the kind of information they need to be seeking from companies to ensure that their investments are sound. Uh, and then I think on the other side of it, uh, it is advising um, the large corporations on how to build um, you know, sustainability into uh, their business strategy, um, you know, how to ensure that climate risk is being dealt with as part of their corporate strategy in order to make their businesses more resilient, um, more successful, uh, and certainly, um, you know, to minimize the risk in their portfolio. Well, there's lots to do. I look forward to continuing the conversation. Karen James is CEO of ERM. Thanks so much for talking to us, Karen. Thank you, Joel. Another one of my stops this week in London was at the headquarters of TrueCost, now part of S&P Global. And of course, TrueCost is our partner in the annual State of Green Business Report. Had the opportunity to see my friend Rich Madison, the CEO of TrueCost. And we had a great conversation about the growth of ESG environmental, social, and governance metrics. Rich, the ESG seems to have gone from the margins to the mainstream. What's going on? Why is that happening now? I think we've reached absolutely a tipping point whereby uh, regulators of financial institutions 
are starting to to uh, get very interested in how they can create interventions in financial policy that drive capital towards sustainable development. And also, uh, the investors themselves are really realizing that an integration of ESG type information into their standard investment process can yield better results. So this is a very, very simple um, and probably obvious to to most listeners of your podcast concept. Um, The question is how and what type of information do we need? Uh, And at TrueCost, our philosophy is that we need better information, not more. Um, And we need information that is financially relevant. So we need information that investors can use that is causally linked to real-world sustainable outcomes rather than correlated. So there's a lot of data out there, and, and you collect a lot of it, and, and, and many of your competitors and other organizations collect a lot of data. What makes data better? So let me give you a tangible example of uh, one of the issues that the Task Force for Climate-Related Financial Disclosures has been struggling with. Just reporting on tons of CO2 emissions gets you so far, but not far enough. Take two companies that both report that they have 100 million tons of CO2. As an investor, which company should you invest in? Now, clearly, they're not going to just use that one data point, but they might use it as part of their overall approach to investing. And in fact, if they're a passive investor, they will use that as a rule. So we have to be quite careful about the data points and information that are being used. So let's go back to those two companies with 100 million tons of carbon each. Do they have the same risk profile? Well, not really. It depends on where they operate, what their supply chains look like, what products they're selling, how exposed they are to regulations, how exposed they are to opportunities to generate more revenue. And so all of those things I just mentioned are important. And in fact, we have just uh, launched a tool that allows companies to analyze their exposure to carbon prices across the world based on where they operate. And some of this information is information that investors are already using. A lot of this is originating here in Europe. It seems that the EU is is playing a critical role in asking companies to do things that they hadn't been asked to do before. And, and first of all, what, what are they asking companies? And is, are these things likely to migrate uh, across the pond or, or into Asia? Talk a little bit about where this goes from, what's going on now in Europe and where this goes from here. So there's a bit of a cascade effect here. In Europe, the European Union is redefining the definition of an investor's duty. And this definition in the future will include the fact that you have to take account of ESG, environmental, social and governance factors in your investing decisions. Because if if they didn't do that, then their policy objectives around ESG type issues would not be met. So what uh, regulators in Europe want to do is align the policies and the goals they've set themselves with the behavior of capital markets. And they're doing that by modifying regulations. Now, why did I mention cascade effect? Well, actually, that clearly cascades down to the type of information these investors are going to expect to allow them to do their job better. Um, And that's not just in Europe. US investors are exposed to European companies. Investors all around the world are exposed to investment opportunities in Europe from European companies. European companies are global companies as well as local companies. And so as soon as you have um, such a large block of the global economy setting rules like this, you have a race to the top in a way. So you're gonna find US investors um, starting to comply with European requirements 
And if they have to comply in Europe, why wouldn't they comply globally? So I'm wondering about the, how increased data leads to increased performance. And I'm thinking about um, an ISO standard, ISO 40001, which was the created environmental management systems back in the 90s. And the, the rub on ISO was that you could be out of compliance and, and being fined and, and being picketed by Greenpeace and still be ISO 4000 or 40001 compliant. How do we know that all of this data and dis increased disclosure is actually going to move the needle in terms of company performance? I think going forward, we're going to have much more live real-time ways of verifying whether companies are doing what they're really doing. Let me give an example. Recently, a company issued a green bond. So the, the principle of a green bond is that you have to prove that you're spending the money in, in uh, a way that is green. So normally what happens is a company will um, list the types of projects that are being funded. So uh, in this particular example, it was a, a, a solar array that was being funded. And um, what is happening with that is that there's an independent organization that is monitoring by satellite how that solar array is being built, how quickly, whether it's being built on plan, how big it is. Um, and that information is being locked into blockchain technology and provided uh, to both the investors in that bond and to the company at the same time. So that's just a little example of where satellite imagery and the latest techniques in technology are leading to almost what is a disintermediation of traditional corporate communication and those cycles associated with that. So in other words, in an era of transparency that you may or may not even ask for yourself, we're getting to the point where uh, investors will, will know more about your company than you know based on your own corporate reports. So this feels like it could be a game changer. Is that, do you think, agree with that? Or am I just being a little Pollyannish here? Well, it, I think it will be because I think we're reaching a tipping point where, let's throw a few buzzwords together, artificial intelligence, uh, fintech, um, big data, all of these types of things are coming together in a way with um, the fact that we have literally, we are able to monitor the entire world. There's a methane satellite being launched. We're able to monitor the entire world with with uh, sensors and data. And I think in that era, we, we will be more likely to be able to understand more about everything that goes on than ever before. Um, what's going to be essential is how we manipulate, interpret all of that wash of data that's coming out of all of these different systems. However, that's happening pretty quickly. And so what you're going to find is that investors are going to be reacting pretty real time to the real world changes you're making to your business model and judging whether those changes are sustainable or not. So with all this data, you can run your company, but you can't hide. Rich Madison is CEO of TrueCost. It's always a pleasure to see you, Rich. Great, a pleasure to see you too, Joel. Thanks. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. As usual, you can go to greenbiz.com slash 350. And you'll find more about the organization's stories and events we mentioned in this episode while you're there. Look for the link to our other podcast called Center Stage, the best of live interviews from GreenBiz events. You can always hit us up by email at 350 at greenbiz.com. We never get tired of hearing from you. GreenBiz 350's director is Stephanie Joyce. Elsa Wenzel is our managing director. 
We'll be back next week with another edition of Green Biz 350. Until then, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks for listening. <laughs>